Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, please, to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our journey through this little letter or epistle of the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 3, and folks, wouldn't you know it that uh, here's a series that we began back in the fall going through the book of Colossians, and on this Sunday, right before Valentine's Day, where are we? We're in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, dealing with the marriage relationship. Isn't that unique? You couldn't have planned it any better, could you? I'm going to be talking this morning on the subject matter, do you have a Christ-honoring marriage? Do you have a Christ-honoring marriage? Uh, Let me say a word about the message this morning. Uh, The sermon notes pages that are available each week. If you picked up one of those, by the way, they're now in little little, uh, hangers by the doorways instead of being on the round table. If you picked up a sermon notes page this morning, uh, please lay that aside. The sermon note page this morning is really a little different in nature. It's not for you to follow along and fill in the blanks. It's more of something for you to take home and look at after the message that I hope will make the message mean a little bit more uh, to you. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? And what we're going to do, even though we're only covering verses 18 and 19 this morning, what I would like to do is drop back to verse 12 so that we can see the full context. Paul says there, "...put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved..." compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Boy, now that applies to marriage, doesn't it? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We know in the Bible that you carry us into the heavenlies, so to speak, with such lofty theology that challenges our minds and our hearts. But Lord, You also bring it down to the level of our everyday lives, our homes, our marriages, our relationships. Father, we thank you for how practical and powerful your word is. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. God, that you would help us understand more about the marriage relationship and that we would have marriages and homes that would glorify you. That we would be different 
from others in society, that we would be Christ-honoring and that our lives would be like salt and light, giving witness to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I told you about a very interesting study. When I read this study, it's so powerful uh, what, the, what the results of this study were. I want to repeat that study to you this morning. It's a study that was conducted by Professor Nick Stennett, who at the time of the study was the chairman of the Department of Human Development and the Family at the University of Nebraska. And he headed up a project entitled Discovering What Makes for Strong Families. Now their team observed and interviewed 3,000 strong families in South America, in Switzerland, in Austria, in Germany, in South America, and also in the United States. And from their research, they concluded that strong families and strong marriages have six common characteristics. First of all, they discovered that strong marriages and families have a commitment to marriage. An undying commitment to family and to marriage. Secondly, they enjoy spending time together. Thirdly, they have good family communication. Fourthly, they express gratitude and appreciation to one another. Fifth, they have a strong spiritual commitment. And then lastly, they are able to solve their problems together when they get in a crisis situation. In other words, folks, strong families and strong marriages don't just happen. They take work. Now, we know that we're living in a society today where we're told that 50%, slightly over 50%, sadly, of even Christian marriages are failing. And then couples get into a second marriage and 60% plus of those marriages and we know all around us in society in Hollywood we see negative examples everything on TV you know from, from past decades from the honeymooners to, to all in the family negative examples negative examples of marriage and family to today's sitcoms and movies I mean we're just bombarded all around us in the media with negative examples of what marriage is but I've got good news for you God cares about your home God cares about your marriage he designed for your marriage and your home to work and to glorify Him in this world. Amen? Now, I'm going to be borrowing this morning some things also from Ephesians. And there is a reason why. You see, Colossians and Ephesians are really 
twin documents in some ways. In fact, it is believed that as the Apostle Paul took his pen and he put his pen down from writing the book of Colossians, that he picked his pen back up, dipped it in ink, and began writing the book of Ephesians. They were written from the same place at the same time. Philemon was also a little book that was written at the same time. And all you got to do to see the similarities between Colossians and Ephesians, just read the two books together because some of the sections in the two books are going to be almost identical. For example, what we talked about last week... The Christian wardrobe, putting off and putting on the right things. You read those two sections in Colossians and Ephesians and they're almost identical in nature. You read what we're going through this morning about marriage, about the husband and wife relationship and they're almost identical between Colossians and Ephesians. Ephesians expands it out a little bit but they're almost the same. Now there's something wonderful also that we see in both Ephesians and Colossians. In both letters, Paul begins by writing of theology of the best sort. He speaks in lofty terms about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's almost as though he carries us up into the very heavenlies. But Paul closes both letters by speaking of the home. You see, theology that is worth anything has got to be applied in everyday life in your home. If your theology doesn't change the way you live around those that you love most, then ladies and gentlemen, something is wrong with your theology. Now let me give another much needed word about these verses to set the table before we dig in. I believe what these passages communicate is what is known as the complementarian view. The complementarian view. If you read our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 statement, which is our doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention, what is communicated and advocated in the Baptist Faith and Message is also the complementarian view. Not the the egalitarian view, but the complementarian view. Now, what do I mean by those terms? Well, put simply, the complementarian view states that men and women have different but complementary roles. The phrase that is sometimes used to describe this is ontologically equal, functionally different. In other words, men and women are equal in creation, in essence, and in value. However, being equal, we have different roles. Complementarians try to preserve the gender-specific roles and functions that we see in the Scripture, believing that there are differences in the sexes for a reason beyond the mere obvious. Equality and yet differences. 
Now for some reason we see in the Bible that God has assigned to the man, to the husband, the place of headship in the home and in the church. Now I realize some try to discount this and say that it was only a first century cultural type of thing but that is not true because you see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 Paul bases his comments on the created order not on culture. The created order transcends all culture. Now why God did this may remain somewhat of a mystery until we get to heaven. But we see that God created Adam and then created Eve to be his helpmate complementary to him. In fact, Adam and Eve both complemented and completed one another. Again, equal in creation. Both created in the Amajo Dei, the image of God, but with different roles, different functions. Now the opposite view is the egalitarian view. The, the egalitarians say, no, we do not hold to the headship roles for the husband. We hold to the same roles and functions. Egalitarians will often take a verse that has to do with salvation. Galatians 3.28 where the scripture says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female and they will apply that verse to everything. Complementarians will say of course Pertaining to salvation, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. No one argues that point. But you cannot take a verse that is only speaking of salvation, lift it out of that context and apply it to the roles inside the church and the home. Plus, we have biblical passages like we've read this morning before us that clearly teach that the husbands have their role and the wives have their role. Now, I mention all this because it's quite interesting, the gymnastics, that modern scholarship of a more liberal slant on this issue has tried to do from time to time in order to to discount these gender-related passages. One fanciful theory they put forth that has no foundation behind it, and fortunately it hasn't gained any traction, is that they'll say these household passages like we see in Ephesians and Colossians, these household passages did not show up in the original version of these letters. Years later, maybe even decades later, an editor came along and added these household passages in, but they weren't in the original document. No foundation for that position. Fortunately, it hasn't gained much traction. Another theory is these verses should be viewed on some type of a lower scale of inspiration than salvation verses like Galatians 3.28. It's almost like these household passages are not quite as equally inspired. 
But folks, isn't it interesting that in Colossians 3.11, Paul almost verbatim repeats Galatians 3.28, referring to salvation. And, and Colossians 3.11 lays right down alongside the verses we look at today. And so as Paul wrote verse 11, did he somehow or another lose inspiration between verse 11 and verse 18? Did the Holy Spirit somehow or another go away? Obviously not. We believe all the Scripture is equally inspired. It's God's Word. Now, I mention all of this because in your everyday life, you may run into all kinds of excuses in the world today for discounting gender-specific passages like we're going to look at today. But try as they might to discount it, these verses are here. They are a part of the biblical text and the inspired canon of Scripture. Now, if somebody uses these verses to promote some type of male chauvinism, let me be emphatic in saying that they have completely misused the Bible and they have misrepresented this position. Because as we will see, if anything, it requires a higher level of responsibility and accountability for the husband. His responsibility is not less. His responsibility is greater being the spiritual head of his household. Now as we turn to our passage today, what we're going to see from this passage is that a Christian living under the Lordship of Christ, everything about his life is to be different. His home life, his marriage, his Christian faith, the fact that he's a new creation in Christ. Folks, that ought to make a huge difference. It ought to make all the difference in the world about everything that we do in our everyday lives. Again, including our marriage and home life. And so let's look first of all this morning at instructions to the wives. Paul's very brief here. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now it is possible that the instruction about marriage, this instruction here about marriage takes place because some may have been asking in the first century world what Christianity means for marriage. Does becoming a Christian change the social order? Does it change the marital responsibilities and the answer to that question would be no Christianity does not diminish marriage but yes Christianity enhances and strengthens marriage he tells the wives here that they are to submit to their husbands it is a verb that is used 38 times in the New Testament and it's used 23 times in Paul's letters now in certain instances not here but in certain instances it can even refer to a forced subjection such as when evil spirits are made subject to Christ or when God subjects all things to Christ or when God has put creation in subjection because of the fall of man 
But what is unique here and in other house code passages is that what Paul is saying here, it is to be a voluntary submission. Now there are other instances when it's also voluntary, such as the church being subject to Christ. Humans subjecting themselves to the governing authorities. Young men being subject to older men in the church. Young women being subject to older women in the church. Christians submitting to their church leaders and children submitting to their parents. Other cases where it's voluntary like here. Now ladies, the instruction here is not intended to be offensive. It is only to point out to you that God has an established pattern like he does for everything. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that God is the head of Christ. Now we know that in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there is equality. God the Son is every bit as much God as God the Father. And God the Spirit is just as much God as God the Son and God the Father. But I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. There is voluntary submission on the part of God the Son to God the Father without diminishing the role of God the Son. Paul is pointing out what we learn in Genesis chapter 2 about the order of creation. The woman was taken out of the man and presented to the man as being a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him. 1 Corinthians eleven eight says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. But so that the man will not feel superior, he takes his life again from the woman. And so God has built into the pattern a mutual dependency. Equality in creation, both created in the image of God, equal. Man created equal in the image of God, male and female, but with different roles, different functions. I heard recently a little joke about Eve. Eve was accusing Adam, maybe he had another woman in his life. And he said, Eve, I don't have another woman in my life. In fact, Eve, you're the only woman alive on the whole entire planet. Well, one night he woke up in the middle of the night. She was pressing on his rib cage and on his abdomen. He said, Eve, what are you doing? She said, I'm counting your ribs. <laughs> But again, equal in creation, different functions, different but complementary. Folks, if not different, if not complementary, then why two? Why two? If not different and not complementary. Now notice also that here wives are told to voluntarily submit, but later in the passage, children will be told to obey. There's a difference. You see, the New Testament writers put the relationship of the wife to the husband in a different, less authoritarian category. 
The wife is not being told to submit to her husband based on the fact that he deserves it because he doesn't deserve it. But instead because this is the order for the family that God has established. And so Paul writes here, as is fitting in the Lord. Well, let's look at the instructions to the husband. In verse 19, look at what Paul says there. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands are to love their wives, just like we're told in Ephesians 5. Now, while the instruction to the wife would have been readily understood and considered commonplace, this particular instruction to the husbands would not have been. Dr. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Colossians makes the statement that there is no instruction from the ancient world whatsoever outside of the biblical text that told husbands to love their wives. This was a brand new teaching and idea that God introduced in Christianity. Moreover, what is also significant about this word when he says husbands love your wives is that he uses the word agape, different words for love in the Greek New Testament and the word agape love is the highest and the holiest of all of the words for love. Agape love means a self-giving self-sacrificing type love where the husband puts his needs and his desires aside and he looks after the needs of his wife. In fact, he's even, he's even willing to lay down his very life for his wife. By the way, agape love is the same type of love that's communicated in John 3.16 that God has for us where the scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Agape love is not a domineering type love. It's not a taking type love. It is a giving, sacrificial type love. And Paul is saying here that is how husbands are to love their wives. A husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or what she's not. He's commanded to love her because it is God's will for him to love her. If every appealing characteristic and every virtue of his wife disappears, a husband is still under just as much an obligation to love her. A joyful obligation. Christ has headship over the church, but it is the kind of headship that is loving, sacrificial, giving, and serving. And men, he's saying that's our pattern. We are to be like Christ. The kind of love that Christ had for his church is the kind of love that you are to have for your wife. Paul then goes on to say here do not be harsh with them. It was common in the ancient world for men to be harsh oftentimes with their families because you see in the ancient world, in the pagan world, men had absolute power over their family, even the power of life and death over their kids. 
And, and in the ancient world, we know that men oftentimes exercise their role with a great deal of harshness because his family and his wife was basically his property and he could do with her and he could do with his family anything that he wanted to. And we know that sometimes men were very cruel. What Paul is doing is calling upon Christian men to be radically different from the men in the world. Because of what Paul has just said in verses 12 to 17 that we looked at last week, he wants the Christians that he's writing to to live on a different plane, a different plateau from the world around them. Folks, remember Jesus said we are to be salt and light in this world. We are to be different from this world. And so men, the way we treat our wives is to be different from how an unbeliever would treat his wife. We are to be different. Our marriages are to be a witness to a lost and a dying world. Of what Christ can do in our lives to transform us and make us new creations in Christ. Christian marriages ought to be the envy of the world. Christian marriages ought to be the model. Christian men are not to act towards their wives in a harsh or a bitter way. He says if the husband acts in a harsh or a bitter way towards his wife, then in turn that will make her bitter. That's what the word here literally means. If a Christian man was harsh with his wife... uh, in in, in such a way that her instruction to submit to him uh, would be difficult. He is to treat her in such a way that her instruction will be joyful and loving in and of itself instead of loathsome. You see, he is to set the pattern. He is to be the thermometer, if you will, that sets the temperature in, in his home. A Christian man ought to treat his wife in such a way that she is joyful and content. I told a joke a couple of years ago about women and contentment. It's been one of the favorite jokes that I've told that people have wanted me to repeat. So I'll repeat it, but men, I might need security after the service, okay? But again, men, I think it says something about contentment, helping your wife to be content. You may have heard they've opened a husband store on Manhattan Island in New York City. The store has six floors where a woman can go and shop for a husband. Now here are the basic rules. As you go up from floor to floor, the men get better. But if you get to a floor and you decide that you want to go back down to the previous floor, you can't. You can only go down to exit the building. 
Now one day this lady goes in on the first floor. She goes to the door. The sign reads, all the men on this floor have jobs. She thinks that's nice because I want my husband to have a job to be able to support me. But she decides, I think I'm going to go up one more floor. So she does. She gets on the elevator, pushes number two, goes up on the second floor. The door opens. She steps off and the sign reads, the men on this floor have jobs and they love kids. Well, hoping to have children one day, she's so pleased she didn't stop on the ground floor. She's so pleased that she went on up to the second floor. But now her curiosity is getting the better of her. To gets back on the elevator, pushes number three. Gets off on the third floor. The door's open. She reads the sign. The men on this floor have jobs, love kids, and are good looking. Well, by now she's getting more and more excited about the floors that remain. So she gets back on the elevator, pushes the fourth floor button. She starts her ride up. She gets off on the fourth floor and the sign reads, The men on this floor have jobs, they love kids, they're good looking, and they enjoy housework. (laughs) Well, she comments to herself, it's just getting better and better. I mean, she's absolutely beside herself. So she jumps back on the elevator, pushes number five, gets off on the fifth floor. The sign there reads, the men on this floor have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead gorgeous, love housework, and they are incredibly romantic. By the way, that's the floor where Connie found me. You doubt that? Well, you can imagine how this lady's feeling by now. She can't can't hardly dream of how it could be much better, but she can't resist. She gets back on the elevator, pushes number six, rides up to the sixth floor. The door's open. She gets off, and there's a sign there that reads, You are visitor number 3,989,000 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists for the express purpose of proving once and for all that women can never Never be satisfied. <laughs> Men love your wives so that they will be content and they would not even be tempted to go shopping for another model. <laughs> now before I close this morning, I want to I ask you to turn back to Genesis 3 for a moment. Because, folks, there is something beautiful that is being demonstrated here in the Scripture, okay? When we read what we read in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, there is something wonderful that is taking place. And I want to show you what that is. But I want you to go back to Genesis 3 a minute because you remember what happened in Genesis 3. Satan came along and tempted the first couple and they took of the fruit of the forbidden tree and sin entered into the human race and the cosmic order. What's called the fall, the fall of man. Well, when that happened, God came along and said, what have you done? And God pronounced a curse, a judgment. He pronounced a judgment on the serpent 
on Satan. He pronounced a curse on the woman. And he pronounced a curse or judgment on the man. Now I want you to see what he said to the woman. Because again, I'm going to tie this in with the New Testament passages. And I'm going to show you what the New Testament is teaching us. If you read Genesis 3.16, look at what the woman's judgment was. God said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now remember, this this judgment is a part of the curse, a part of the fall. There's an interesting phrase in there. As part of the judgment, as part of the fall, he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. Well, how in the world is is that a curse? I think most men would want to know their wife desires him. Well, it's been interpreted in several ways, several ways that I think are incorrect. Then I'll tell you what I think it means. For example, some have tried to say, regardless of the fact that God has just said you will have great pain in childbirth, you are still going to desire intimacy with your husband even though you know what the result of that intimacy is going to be. It is going to be a pregnancy followed by a very painful delivery. And yet despite that, you are still going to desire that intimacy with your husband. Still another interpretation is since you acted independently of your husband in eating of the forbidden fruit, now you are going to become dependent on your husband and he is gladly going to rule over you. I don't think either one of those interpretations are correct. The desire that is spoken of here is not sexual, it's not psychological. It is a Hebrew word that refers to seeking control over. It is the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis chapter 4 where God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, that is, it wants to master you, it wants to control you and dominate you, but you must master it. And so what Eve is being told is that from henceforth as a result of the fall, what we are going to experience now is the battle of the sexes. The tug of war between husbands and wives. Here is the wife clamoring after desiring her husband's role of headship. But he ain't going to let her have it. Even if he has to dominate her. 
The word for rule here, you see, is not the same Hebrew word for rule that was back in Genesis chapter 1 where Adam and Eve were to rule over creation. They were to have a very positive rule, a dominion over creation. But the word for rule here describes a very authoritarian, a despotic kind of rule. And so here is where male chauvinism is, in, is introduced. Think about what's happened. We have Adam and Eve, intimate, helpmates, complementary to one another. That's how God designed it. But then sin enters into the picture and so you have Eve desiring his place and he's not going to let her have it. You have this unhealthy tug of war, a tug for power that's going on in the marriage. And what the New Testament is teaching us in these household passages like in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 Paul is saying to Christian couples that through the power of Christ you can enjoy a little taste of heaven on earth. You, in your marriage you can go back to the Genesis 1 and 2 pattern the way God designed marriage to be where Adam had headship, Eve was complementary to him they, were, they completed one another, their relationship was very beautiful you can go back to that. The man, yes, he has the headship role, but it is a headship role that is to be carried out in agape love. Everything he does is to undergird and uplift and strengthen his wife. And she voluntarily submits to that and the two of them together have a very beautiful relationship where they are striving together as a unit, a married unit, to bring honor and glory to God and there is not this constant tug of war going on that sin introduced. Such a wonderful thing that we're being told. How Christ can revolutionize a marriage. I want to invite you to follow the ABCs of a good marriage. First of all, acknowledge Christ as Lord of your home. Folks, it does not take two, it takes three to have a great marriage. Christ at the top. Think of it like a triangle. Christ at the top and husband and wife. And as the husband and wife, as they grow together towards Jesus Christ, what else is happening? As they're growing together in their relationship to Jesus Christ, notice that they are growing closer together. Folks, that is a principle that works. It's biblical. Husbands and wives, I challenge you, grow together in your relationship to Christ and see what God does in your relationship. It's going to be wonderful. B, be blind to the faults of others. You know, we love to play the blame game, don't we? And it started there in the garden. 
God, uh, God said to Adam, what have you done? God, it's this woman that you gave to me. He goes to the woman. God, it's Satan. He tempted me. We, we're, we're masters at playing a blame game, aren't we? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we sure are famous for looking at the speck in somebody else's eye when we've got a big old plank hanging out of ours. Husbands and wives, stop looking at the speck in your spouse's eye and deal first with the planks in your own eye. Be blind to the faults of others and deal with your own faults. And see, call on the Lord in prayer to give you strength to do what He has called you in the Scripture to do. This morning you may say, Pastor, my marriage needs changing. Well, you know what? You can begin changing your marriage by changing yourself. Change yourself and see what happens. And to those here today who may not be believers, I want to challenge you to give your mate the greatest gift of all, a Christian husband, a Christian wife. There may be a man that needs to come forward this morning saying, Pastor, I've never been saved. I've never been born again. I want to pray with you that you would call call out to the Lord, that the Lord would come in to your life, your heart, convert you and redeem you, that He would make you a new creation in Christ. I tell you what, that is the greatest gift that you can give to your wife. And if there's a lost woman here, the same. Greatest gift you can give is being a new creation in Christ. So step out and come forward if that's your need. The altar's going to be open. Should a couple desire to come to the altar together and pray together. And don't assume if a couple comes to the altar that there's a problem. There may not be a problem at all. They may be coming to the altar because things are good. And they're saying, God, thank you for what you've done in us. Strengthen it even more. But there may be a couple that wants to come here in a time of rededication.